you've got a Bible, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. I will have the verses up on the screen this morning, but if you've got a Bible, you may want to get over to Matthew 7. Uh, When I was, I don't know, in elementary school, there was a song that I remember hearing on the radio as I rode the bus to school. Uh, The song was by Mr. Mister, a popular band from the 80s, and uh, I remember the melody kind of going like, it was something like this. It was like, Kyrie lays and down the road that I must travel, right? And so they would sing that catchy hook. And the, the phrase that they sang at the beginning is Kyrie eleison. It's actually, I know this now, it's a Greek phrase that means God have mercy. So they would sing Kyrie eleison, down the road that you must travel, Kyrie eleison, through the darkness of the night, uh, but I didn't know that that's what it meant when I was eight or nine. And so, what I heard instead in my head was carry a laser down the road that you must travel, which uh, makes a lot of sense, if I'm honest. As you listen to the rest of the lyrics, carry a laser through the darkness of the night, right? So, for years, that's what I thought this song was saying. Uh, so, I thought it would be fun to ask some of my friends this past week. What was a song or songs that you misunderstood the lyrics when you were growing up? Uh, What was the actual song and what were the lyrics that you misunderstood? And so I posted that on Facebook. I got tons of responses. I wish I could share all of them, but let me just share a few of my favorites that some of my friends said. Uh, This one was really popular, Rock the Casbah by The Clash. A lot of people said it, it sounded like Rock the Cat Box to them. Uh, another one that uh, I enjoyed was this one. There is a Bad Mood on the Rise by CCR. There's a bathroom on the right, <laughs> which again, if you listen to the song, kind of makes sense in context. Uh, we'll keep going here. Bring Me a Higher Love, Steve Winwood. Bring Me an Iron Lung, which again, you would need quickly if you needed that, right? Bring Me an Iron Lung. Uh, two Tickets to Paradise, Two chickens are paralyzed. Now, that one doesn't make any sense in the context. I'm just going to be honest. But the good thing is the actual song doesn't really either. So, uh, hold me closer, Tiny Dancer. Hold me closer, Tony Danza. That one is so specific. I just thought, man, that's just a great misunderstanding. Somebody else said they heard that as hold me close, I'm trying to dance here, uh, was the other way that people understood that one. Do you like pina coladas? Do you like bean enchiladas? Uh, That was, actually, I like the misunderstanding better than I like the original song, because I love bean enchiladas. So, uh, you know, but but as I thought about these, here's here's what I was thinking was this, that uh, if you heard the lyrics a particular way, it's really hard later to hear them any different way, right? So my illustration carry a laser, right? It took me a long time before I realized, hey, the the right lyrics are not what you're hearing at all because it made sense. I had constructed a whole context around the song where carry a laser made a lot of sense. And some of us, that's the way that we hear these songs, and so it's hard to dislodge those misunderstandings. Now, the reason I share that is because that happens to us with the Bible as well. There is a verse or verses, perhaps, that you heard when you were young. You've heard them all your life, and you may understand the words correctly because you can read it from the Bible, but you misunderstand the meaning of the passage. 
And so some of the most commonly quoted passages in the Bible, I think, are passages that we misunderstand. So you may have a passage that's on a coffee cup that you read every morning, and you believe it means one thing, right? But maybe it doesn't mean what you think it means. So what I wanted to do for just the next few weeks, we really have just four weeks for this series, I want to take a few of the most commonly misunderstood Bible passages and try to illuminate them for us. What do they actually mean in their context? All right, so what that means is that we might have to deconstruct a little bit of your understanding of the passage, right? So I want to talk for a few minutes about what we're going to do and why we're going to do it with this series. I want to talk about my goals for taking some of these passages and explaining them. Let me, let me begin with a couple of things I'm not trying to do with this series. First of all uh, is this. I am not trying to destroy your childhood memories, okay? One of the passages that I'm going to do uh, in a week or two, Jeremiah 29, 11. My own mom, when she found out I was preaching on that passage, she said, that is my life verse, son, and if you ruin it, I will never forgive you. Okay, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to ruin your favorite passages or steal away some passage that has given you great comfort. I promise you, I will not deconstruct without rebuilding. Okay, I'm not going to tear down your understanding of a passage without rebuilding for you what it really means. And what I, what I think you're going to find with all of these is that the, the actual meanings of these passages are going to be a lot more powerful than maybe the meaning you've been holding in your head. Okay, so I'm not trying to destroy your favorite verses or your childhood. Secondly, I am not trying to help you win Facebook arguments, at least not merely trying to help you win. Facebook arguments or face-to-face arguments about these passages. In other words, I'm not simply trying to say, let's fill our minds with an academic understanding of these passages so that when somebody misquotes them or misunderstands them, we can win. That's not what I'm wanting to do. All right, so, so what am I trying to do? Well, I have a few goals. Let me, let me walk through some of the goals this morning for this series. The first one is this. Uh, I want us to improve our Bible study skills. Now, I realize that may not sound to you like the most exciting goal. All right, but, but what I want us to do is that w- whenever we hear a passage of Scripture quoted, we understand how do I look at that passage of Scripture the way it was intended in the context in which it was written, right? We all have a tendency when we're trying to prove a point to pull a passage out of its context and say, this is what this passage means and therefore my point is correct, right? What I want us to do is to begin to say when somebody does that or when we're tempted to do that, to make sure that I know how to study the Bible properly so I can interpret correctly. All right, so I want us to improve our Bible study skills. Secondly, yes, to clarify some of these misunderstood verses. Some of these verses are going to be ones that you hear quoted all the time. I tried to pick, again, some of the most popular ones. Unfortunately, I only have four weeks. After I planned it, several people said, well, are you going to do this verse and this verse and this verse? I had to cut a lot. So down the line, I may come back and we may do a part two, maybe next spring. We'll all cover some more. 
But I want to clarify what I think are some of the ones that are misunderstood the most in our culture. And then thirdly, I want us to learn to obey God's word more faithfully. That is, that proper application of the word flows from proper interpretation. Only when I understand it correctly can I apply it correctly. So let me, let me give you uh, an illustration uh, of what I'm talking about. One verse I'm not going to cover during this series because we, we talked about it last semester in the book of Philippians. Philippians 4.13. You remember Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? You may remember we talked about that when we talked about the book of Philippians, right? And, and often we said one of the ways that th- that verse gets used is just like this, right? Here's a football team holding a banner. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Now, does that verse promise us that we will win this game? Absolutely not, right? Because, because what happens if you don't win? Does that mean God isn't faithful? What if you do win? What does that say about the other team that you're playing? Or if you lose, does it mean I didn't pray hard enough? I didn't try hard enough? I am in sin. If the passage means, hey, I literally can do anything I want because Jesus is always on my side, that's going to affect my approach to God, isn't it? That's going to affect my approach to other people. And remember, what we talked about with this passage was I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is in a particular context, right? Where Paul is talking about contentment, whether I have a lot, whether I have a little. Whether he's in the midst of trial or in the midst of joy, he can be content and trust God and persevere because Jesus gives him strength. All right, so it doesn't promise me that I will win. It promises me Jesus will be with me if I trust him, win or lose. All right, so proper application flows from proper interpretation. So that's what we're going to look at throughout the course of this series. Let me just uh, briefly tell you a little bit about the flow for each week, what we're going to do. Okay, so those are our goals, improve our Bible study skills, clarify misunderstood verses, obey God's word more faithfully. Uh, How are we going to walk through each week? Just really quickly, the basic outline will be like this. I'm going to look at how each passage is normally interpreted. We'll kind of give some examples, maybe from the church, maybe from the, the popular culture. How is this passage usually interpreted? Secondly, what does the passage really mean? So sometimes we may have to look at why is that original interpretation wrong? What does it really mean in its context? And then thirdly, how do we apply it today? How should we apply the passage in our current lives? All right, so what is, how is it usually interpreted? What does it really mean? How should we apply it? Okay, so with that introduction to the series, let's dive into our passage for the week. Matthew chapter 7. Starting in verse 1, let me read the passage, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about how it's usually understood. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Okay, so extremely popular passage. It's quoted all the time. People quote it without even realizing that they are quoting it. I would guess that if you walked up to just the average person on the street, even if they don't go to church, and you said, tell me about something that Jesus taught when he was alive. The odds are are really good. If they remember anything Jesus said, the odds are really good. They're going to say, Jesus said, do not judge. Right? That's probably all actually that they will remember of the passage is those three words. Jesus said, do not judge. They may remember the rest of that verse. Do not judge, lest ye be judged. It gets quoted all the time. And, and, and now that you know that, you'll, you'll start to hear it. Right? So you'll be at a party and somebody will grab that third cupcake and they say, do not judge me as they eat it. Right? You'll, you'll see it in, in public debates about politics. Right? We saw this in 2016 when there were arguments about which of the candidates was more immoral. And people would say, when it was their candidate at least, who are you to judge? Only God can judge. Right? So you, you hear it all the time. How is it normally used then? Here's how it's normally interpreted. It normally is used to say, never make moral judgments about what other people do, say, or believe, right? You, you have no right to ever make a moral judgment about what somebody else does or says or believes. So let me give you a few illustrations from just popular culture. The actress, Sarah Jessica Parker, here's a quote. She says, I don't judge others. I say, if you feel good with what you're doing, let your freak flag fly. I actually practiced saying that because I cannot say it more than once without messing up those last words. If you feel good with it, you can't judge me. Don't judge. Let me give you another one. Dolly Parton. She says this, we're not supposed to pass judgment. Our Bible says, here it is, judge not lest ye be judged. We're all God's children. No matter how we try to get to heaven, we all want to go there. We just have our own routes to take, and that's how I look at it, right? So the idea is you can't say that one person's pathway to heaven is any better than another person's pathway to heaven. You can't say that one person's approach to life before God is any better or worse than another person's approach to life before God right? Never make a moral judgment. We hear it in our culture used probably most frequently about sexual ethics, right? You should never make any sort of moral judgments in the realm of sexuality because only God can judge. That's typically how it's used. So what I want to do again this morning is I want to look at why does that miss the mark for what the passage is saying and what Jesus is actually saying in the original context. And then I want to rebuild what does it mean. Okay, so let's look for a few minutes then at uh, what is the, uh, why is the usual interpretation wrong? Why is it missing the mark? First reason is this. The Bible actually encourages us to make moral judgments in a lot of places. I'm going to give us a few verses this morning. The Bible encourages us to make moral judgments. Let me show you a few passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the words of Paul, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man 
from among you. Okay, what is, what is he getting at? Remember, this is in a context where he is talking about sexual ethics within the church. And there was a man within the Corinthian church who was committing incest, right? Sleeping with his mother-in-law. And, and the people in the church in Corinth were, were letting it slide. And Paul says, no, you need within the church at least to make moral judgments. He says, remove the wicked man from among you. This is actually a passage about church discipline, that there was a point at which this person had been approached, they had been talked to, and persisted in the sin. And so Paul says, you have an obligation, actually, not just that it's okay, but you have an obligation in this context to judge. Let me show you a few other passages, and then I'm going to talk about them for just a minute. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, this is also the words of Jesus at the beginning of a discussion on discipline within the church. That is, correction within the church, and if necessary, discipline. He says, the first step is, look, if you sin or I sin, I am to go to you or you're to come to me and say, hey, you have, you have transgressed to the boundaries of God's will, right? You've stepped outside of what God wants for your life. You come to me in private and you say, Matt, I see something in your life that is wrong, right? In order to say that, what do you have to do? Well, you have to make a moral judgment. On some level, you have to decide what you're doing is not right. And so you come and you talk to me. Okay, let me show you a couple of others here. James chapter 5, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Again, if somebody begins to wander, you have a responsibility to pull that person back and you will save his soul or his life is how that could be translated. You could save him from dying if the behavior is destructive enough. And then one more, John chapter 7, Jesus again, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So you should judge, just don't judge according to appearance. Okay, so it's clear that throughout the Bible, we see that the Bible encourages us to make moral judgments. Now, the point I want to I highlight, though, is when it does encourage us to make moral judgments, I, and this is going to come back later in the talk, when it does encourage us to make moral judgments, it's not for the sake of condemnation, but for the sake of what? Of restoration. Right, So when I come to my brother or sister in private and I say, you have stepped out of the boundaries of what God wants for your life, my goal is not to make myself feel righteous and point out that you are unrighteous. That's not my goal. My goal, hopefully, is to say, you have wandered into dangerous territory. You are on a pathway that could lead you to destruction, that could lead you to heartache, that could lead you to death. And I want you to come back. And so that as we look at the scripture, the goal of making those moral judgments is to help and not to condemn. I was reading an article this past week about a woman in 1994. Her name is Catherine Warburton. She was at the Alaska Zoo in Anchorage, and she was uh, looking at the polar bear. His name is Binky, which I think is a very non-threatening name for a polar bear. Binky the polar bear. Beautiful bear, but Catherine Warburton decided she wanted to see the bear closer. 
And so she climbed over two safety rails to stand right up next to where the bear's uh, enclosure was, right up next to the actual bars to, to put her hands through and take a picture. And Binky was in no mood for the paparazzi. And so he came over to the bars and he grabbed her through the bars on her leg and bit that leg. Now she didn't die. She survived. They managed to pull her away and she healed. And she says to this day, that was the dumbest thing I ever did in my life. Now I want you to imagine for a minute that you and I are at the the zoo and we are looking at a bear. And I say, man, I need a selfie with that bear. I can tell we would be friends. And you say to me, that is that is unwise, right? You will hurt yourself. You might die. You will get arrested. And I say, don't judge me, right? You have a, a dog. I've seen you with animals. Right? <laughs> Who are you to judge my choices? You'd say, well, I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm trying to save you. A lot of heartache and a lot of pain. And so the scripture encourages us, especially those of us in the body of Christ, to make moral judgments for the sake of those around us. Secondly, the the usual interpretation misses that the passage says more than simply, do not judge. There's there's five verses, and, and the passage itself is set in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters of the book of Matthew, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes as well, but often what we do is we just take those three words, do not judge, or maybe we take the second half of it, do not judge, lest you be judged, and then we stop there. And we miss the context. I had a seminary professor who used to say the three most important things in interpreting the Bible are context, context, and context. Right? And so so we miss what what comes before it, and we miss what comes after. And I always imagine it's like Jesus starts to talk and he goes, Do not judge. And you go, Yeah, unless you be judged. And he goes, For by what? And and we've moved on, like we've walked away. And Jesus says, Wait, 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 wait. There's more. Sometimes I will begin to speak to one of my kids and I will say, hey, now here's what I need you to do. And before I begin to say the rest of it, they say, I know, daddy, you want me to wash the dishes. Right now, a lot of times they're right, but there are a few times they're wrong, right? Because I might have been about to say, I need you to go put your shoes on so we can go get ice cream. But they've interrupted. So then they have to wash the dishes, right? They've got to go do that. (laughs) And what we do is is we only listen to a part of what Jesus says, and we miss the rest. And we're going to talk about the rest in a little bit. But we need to understand the context. There are five verses here. Do not judge, lest you be judged. And then Jesus expounds further. With any passage, if somebody quotes you a passage and there's only three or four words, and they've pulled them out. Question the interpretation. Okay, so the passage says a lot more than do not judge. And then uh, thirdly, why is the usual interpretation wrong? Here's why. Everybody makes moral judgments. Everybody in the world, like it or not, you make moral judgments about what is right and about what is 
wrong. I'm going to give you a couple of examples based on the uh, quotes I showed you earlier. Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, the series that she's most famous for, many of you know, is called Sex and the City, right? A series that was on probably 20 years ago. And of course, the, the defining ethic of the series was kind of anything goes, right? You cannot judge anybody else's moral choices. Now, what's interesting, though, is she has done interviews in the last year or two in light of the Me Too movement, in which she has said, oh, wait a second, maybe we do need to place some boundaries around sexual behavior, at least in terms of pressure or coercion, right? And those are good boundaries. I would just argue they're insufficient boundaries. Dolly Parton says, do not judge, right? We should never judge another person's choices. And I say, well, then on what basis do you have the moral authority to say that Jolene should not take your man just because she can't, right? <laughs> Jolene might say, look, I, my beauty is beyond compare with flaming locks of auburn hair and ivory skin and eyes of emerald green. And I want your man so I can take him. But my guess is you listen to that song and you go, I hate Jolene. She's a homewrecker. She's a thief. And she's wrong. And people have covered that song for generations. And I read an interview with one young woman who covered the song and she goes, Jolene's a mess. She just walks around stealing stuff. Right? So you can say do not judge. But when you come into my house and take my stuff, all of a sudden I draw a line. Everybody makes moral judgments. You can't avoid it. All right, so the only question then is how do we make moral judgments? And what is Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 7 about how we make moral judgments? What does the passage actually mean? Now, I, this is where I want to lay out for you again. Remember, this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the longest sermon that Jesus gives during his earthly ministry, right? And he's giving this sermon initially to his disciples, but as you, as you read the passage and you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, other people gather as Jesus is talking, right? So he starts talking to his disciples. By the end of this sermon, it seems like there's a lot of people around, and you remember the Sermon on the Mount starts with what we call the Beatitudes, right? The, the blessed are the, blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. There's all of these Beatitudes that are, that are attitudes toward God and attitudes toward other people that will lead to a life of blessedness, right? What does blessed mean? Really, it just means happy or fortunate before God. Right? That, that, that you are favored by God. Blessed are all these people. And so Jesus lays out these beatitudes, and then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount basically explains them. Right? So he talks about the dangers of things like pride. Right? Instead of being meek, you're, you're prideful. Instead of being poor in spirit, you seek money at all costs. Right? You're anxious and worried. You get into interpersonal conflict because you lack gentleness and mercy, right? And, and here in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about one of the dangers of being a person who is not gentle or merciful toward others is you begin to take an approach in your relationships where you're constantly self-righteous, where you approach other people with the question, how can I prove that I am morally superior to you? 
And then what you do is you set up standards of righteousness that are not God's standards of righteousness, right? You, you create your own standards of righteousness. And then you judge people for falling short. So Jesus says this. He says, judge not lest you be judged. Now, now look as he goes forward. For in the way you judge, you will be judged by your standard of measure it will be measured to you, right? So first and foremost, whatever standard you choose, just beware because you're going to be judged by that same standard. And then he goes on, he says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In Romans chapter 2, Paul reiterates this passage, and and we'll see that in just a moment, but but what Jesus is saying is this, when you make judgments, not if, when you make judgments, do so carefully and charitably. When you make judgments, do so, first of all, carefully. That is, you make sure you're judging by the right standard. This is why Jesus would say, don't judge according to appearance, but according to the right judgment. Be careful. And secondly, you you be charitable. By charitable, I mean you believe the best, you give the benefit of the doubt, and you judge with humility, recognizing you are also a sinner, subject to the judgment of God. When you make judgments, you do so carefully and charitably. Romans chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, do what? You practice the same things. You had best not judge others for the thing you are doing yourself. Right, so, so Jesus says you need, to, you need to judge carefully and judge charitably. Let me, let me give us then a couple of principles for how we should judge. Okay, first of all, make sure your standard is correct. John chapter 7, again, remember Jesus says, don't, don't judge by appearance, but you judge with righteous judgment. Some of you may recognize that theme. It goes, goes back to uh, when uh, the prophet Samuel came to anoint King David. You remember, and God said, I want you to go out to Bethlehem, Samuel, and you're going to anoint a new king. And he goes into Bethlehem and he sees this guy, uh, Eliab, right? David's oldest brother. And Eliab is tall and he's strong and he's good looking. And so Samuel sees him and he thinks, that's got to be the guy, right? But, but here's the thing. That was the same way they chose King Saul. And that didn't work out. Right? The only real qualification we ever learn about Saul is he's tall. That's it. But he's a train wreck of a king. And so when Samuel walks into Bethlehem and he sees Eliab, he goes, that's got to be the guy. And, and God says to him, no, you don't look at the outward appearance, for I have rejected him. Why? For man looks at the outward appearance, but God does what? God looks at the heart. And so what Jesus says is, if you're going to judge, make sure that your standard is correct. Don't look at external standards of judgment. Now, Jesus is no doubt on some level addressing the Pharisees when he says this, because the Pharisees were experts at creating standards of judgment that only they could live up to, but nobody else could match, right? So Jesus would criticize them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I love that imagery. Imagine being at your kitchen sink, right? And you're, you're straining and there is a camel in there with the spaghetti. And you look, and that little gnat goes through, and you go, good, I got it. And you serve up the camel spaghetti. Jesus says, that's what you've done. The externals are only a a sliver of what's going on, because because the reality of what's going on is, is in the heart where only God can see. And he says, Pharisees, what you've done is you've said, how much of your dill is still in the spice cabinet, buddy? Yeah, looks like I'm more righteous than you. And you say, well, I don't, I don't do that, right? I don't go around, I don't look at people's spice cabinets to judge them. Um, or maybe you do, I don't know. Maybe that's something you do. Uh, maybe you look at your, their bathroom cabinets when they're not looking and uh, make judgments. But I wonder if we pick our own standards of judgment. Where do your kids go to school? They go to public school, they go to private school, you homeschool. You have some rationale for it. Maybe you look at another family and you go, I can't believe that they send their kids to wherever. Or they don't send their kids to wherever. You let your kids have a phone when they were a certain age and somebody else did not. And that becomes your measuring bar for your spirituality as a parent. When I was in college, there was this big debate going on in the Christian world. Should Christian students be involved in dating or courting? Right? And, and the idea was if you are dating, you are worldly and out there. And if you are courting and you, you have this different intentional approach, you're, you're in here. You're one of us, right? And so there was this battle. I judge you for being weird and I judge you for being unrighteous. And so you create a standard. Right? Or, or the scripture says, look, don't get drunk with wine, but it doesn't say never drink alcohol at all. But maybe you have, you have a standard, maybe on either side of that, and you say, look, I don't ever drink alcohol, and what? Neither should you. Or you say, you know what? I do, and the fact that you don't, that makes you immature, and I'm enlightened. And so we grab a standard. Do you stay at home, or do you work? you follow Dave Ramsey or some other financial plan? Do you eat clean or do you occasionally eat that third cupcake? And so we set a bar and then we judge everybody else by that bar and that bar is not biblical. And so Jesus says, you'd best be cautious what standard of judgment you use lest you be judged by the same standard. If I push that kind of judgment out into my relationships all the time and I create that sort of toxicity in my relationships, don't be surprised if that judgment lands back on me. So he says, judge carefully. Make sure your standard is correct. And secondly, attend to your own sin first. 
Attend to your own sin first. Here's what Jesus is essentially saying. We are not as self-aware as we think that we are. We are not as aware of our own sinfulness as we like to imagine. And I love, again, the imagery he uses. Anybody who says that Jesus never told jokes has not read these passages. Because Jesus says, look, you walk up to your brother and you go, ah, there's something in your eye. Hold on, let me grab the tweezers. And Jesus says, you can't even see what's in his eye because you have a plank on your face. Drop the plank on your face. And then what? Then you can see clearly to take the speck. Right? If if I have coffee all over my shirt, And I walk up to you and I go, you got a little bit of toothpaste. (laughs) You're going to go, man, did you even see yourself in the mirror this morning? That's what Jesus says. And so so we, we judge by standards that aren't biblical, but we also judge when we're doing the same things because we lack self awareness. We don't know ourselves as well as we think. One of my favorite uh, examples of this maybe in modern culture is, uh, you know, we will uh, get on our phones and go, I cannot believe, I cannot believe all the articles I'm reading about how much millennials are on social media. (laughs) They are the worst. They don't pay attention to their families. They scroll through it all day long, right? And I'm doing the same thing. If I set up a lunch meeting, if you are 20 minutes late. I don't like that. You're wasting my time. If I am 20 minutes late, there will be a good reason for it, and you need to wait. And so we create these standards, and then we approach our relationships, and we say, you're wrong, and I'm right, and I have a self-righteousness. And see, where the Sermon on the Mount ultimately is going to take the readers, is there is no such thing as a righteousness that meets the standards of God, right? So so if you're walking around thinking the reason God lets me into his kingdom or the reason God approves of me is because I am better than you, if if that's your approach, Jesus is going to say, now you've missed it all together, right? The the point of the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately going to be this, none of us even come close to meeting the standards of God. And so you'd best be careful if you want to condemn another. Because what you and I need that God has given freely is grace. That Jesus Christ, who, who if anybody has a right to judge, man, it's Jesus. Right? And there will be a day when Jesus will judge. But he provides every opportunity for mercy and forgiveness. And he went to the cross, and he died for our sin, and he rose from the grave. And the character of God is to judge mercifully and graciously and correctly. And so Jesus says, seek to do the same. So that's Matthew 7. That's the meaning of the passage Matthew chapter 7, we judge carefully and charitably. Let me quickly close with a few principles then to apply in our interpersonal relationships. First of all, err on the side of grace. If you're going to err, 
Err on the side of grace. In other words, believe the best. You don't know everything about another person. You don't even know everything about yourself and your own heart. So you err on the side of grace. Secondly, pray before you confront. Again, the scripture does tell us at times to make moral judgments. And we may find ourselves in a situation where we have to go to a friend or a family member or a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, you're, you're on the path toward destruction and I want you to come back. But you pray. God, help me, help me judge correctly. Help me see myself clearly. Help me see them clearly. Pray before you confront. Thirdly, if we can get that to go. Ryan, do you mind moving us forward? There we go. Thirdly, judge by God's standards. Judge by God's standards. Make sure that my standard is accurate according to the Scripture. Fourthly, remember that you are a sinner and approach with humility. And then fifthly, seek restoration, not condemnation. My goal is not to condemn. You know why? Because only God ultimately decides who's in and who's out, who's in his kingdom and who's only God decides that. But I seek restoration to say what my goal is, is, is this. I want you to know Jesus Christ and I want you to draw closer to him and maybe the path that you're on right now is leading you further away. And so we seek restoration in our relationships. So Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged. When you and I find ourselves in a position of making moral judgments, our goal is ultimately to draw people closer to the God who made them, who loves them, who wants to know them through Jesus Christ. And to recognize we are as much in need of grace as the person sitting across from us. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for this morning, and we're grateful for your word. I pray we would learn how to understand it and apply it correctly. Father, we pray that we would be people of humility and mercy and gentleness because uh, we know that Jesus Christ is full of grace and full of truth. Father, I pray we would point those around us to him. Father, we praise you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.